When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey there, welcome to The Tent. I'm your host, Scott Fellman, and it's time for yet another foray into the world of aquariums from a slightly different perspective. I suppose that if you pressed me, I'd tell you that I think one of the best things in the aquarium hobby is taking on a task, acting on an idea, or attempting to do something that you know, everyone feels is so hard. <laughs> of course, there's a lot of room for interpretation here. Every hobbyist has their own list of stuff that's hard to do in the aquarium world. For some people, it's keeping a neon tetra alive. For others, it's, you know, doing water exchanges. For some people, it's programming a controller to uh, replicate the uh, intertidal frequency of a swamp in, you know, Tahiti or something. There's all kinds of different degrees of difficulty. I get that. Of course, you know, over the years, I've been fascinated by the idea that certain fishes get this label of difficult to keep. And I've spent a lot of time considering what the factors are which lead to some of these fishes receiving this label. And I want to open that discussion up today. And I think that's something that maybe will make you think a little bit. Now, first, it starts with where the fish comes from. Some species come from ecological niches, which are significantly different than, you know, those uh, water conditions that we, uh, the typical hobbyist in, say, suburban Atlanta or Lisbon or Seoul or whatever, could easily provide. Perhaps they don't easily or quickly adapt to hard alkaline water or fluctuating temperatures, etc. We need to recreate the environmental conditions from which they come if we want to keep them in aquariums. Now, sometimes those conditions aren't simply pH, alkalinity, and temperature, of course. Perhaps they're more subtle factors, like the humidity of the atmosphere surrounding the aquarium water. Maybe it's the type of substrate materials which are incorporated into their displays. Perhaps it's water movement, maybe some missing trace element, which is perhaps best provided by incorporating a certain botanical material or rocks or substrate. Maybe it's a combination of factors. Other times it's actually about food. Some species are very specific feeders. For example, certain marine butterfly fishes are what are known as obligate corallivores. They only feed on live you know, coral polyps. Now, the obligate corallivore thing used to be a real non-starter for keeping a lot of species of butterfly fishes. You had no access to live coral. Well, now we grow coral pretty easily, as you know. Now, while one could debate the ethics of doing so, we could keep these butterfly fishes if we're willing to sacrifice our acropora or whatever species of coral we grow. You could. There's trade-offs, but that's an example of something you could do. Now, some species in freshwater fishes, like hatchet fishes, are used to feeding on live insects at the surface of the water. You need to understand how to culture fruit flies and ants, etc., in order to keep them successfully, or should I say, in order to get them to acclimate successfully to captive foods and stuff like that. The other factor is sort of related to the first one, where the fish comes from. Some fishes come from really remote areas with limited access to collection and distribution points and challenging air freight logistics. 
even today, places like Papua New Guinea or Borneo or the Solomon Islands are really challenging places to get fishes out of alive. This, of course, puts a lot of stress on fishes, many of which aren't fed along the chain of custody from collector to retailer, resulting in you know, half-starved, weakened, likely parasite-laden fish arriving at your local fish store. And that's a really rough way to start, right? And of course, there's other factors too. And combinations again. In recent years, mass breeding in certain nations has resulted in an influx of inbred, weak, low, quali- low genetic quality stock, which for you know any number of reasons, simply aren't as robust as those produced on a smaller scale or by the work of you know hobbyist breeders. Some are like so low quality that you're actually better off dealing with wild-caught specimens of the same species in your tank, despite the difficulties in getting them to you. Of course, one of the more interesting and humbling things about dealing with nature's creations is that even if you think you're knowledgeable, prepared, etc., up for the challenge, you might still fall way short of the mark. God knows I've done this millions of times over the years. I remember, case in point, like 19 years ago, literally about 19 years ago, I really wanted to keep a group of alligator pipefish. It's a marine fish, uh, Cygnathoides biaculatus in a marine aquarium. It's a cool looking green alligator looking like pipefish, about eight inches, uh, uh, which is I think about, uh, I want to say it's about 20 centimeters or so in size. And it's just a, a slow moving, elegant, primitive looking fish, really unusual. And of course, after coveting this fish for a long time and doing some research with the resources that were available at the time, so the early phases of the internet, uh, I thought it, I was ready. I realized that the big hurdle of keeping this fish in captivity was feeding it. So in the wild, they, they feed on planktonic organisms. And it's something that at the time was considered pretty difficult to obtain in the aquarium hobby in the reef world. It was just starting to, we're just starting to look into like live foods and stuff like that. And there's still a lot of emphasis on live rock and so forth. Now, this is what I thought was my ace in the hole. I figured I could just get the fish to eat the newly, you know, available frozen mysis shrimp. Because mysis are very similar to what they ate in the wild. Just spend a few weeks hand feeding them and blam, cool showfish in my aquarium. I was set. I was so wrong on so many levels. First off, obtaining specimens that weren't already half starved was, you know, challenging enough. That was a real problem. Those fishes didn't come in well fed at all. These fishes need to eat on a near constant basis and usually they're almost gone by the time they arrive at the local fish store. And then placing them in an aquarium and attempting to feed them a strange non-living food is just another challenge. Sometimes it's too much. And yeah, I lost all five of the fish that I obtained. I mean, it was pretty devastating because I thought at the time I put in a lot of research on it. But I couldn't let it go. Um, Interestingly enough, about three months after my pipefish debacle, I was at uh, the Marine Aquarium Conference of North America, MACNA, where I ended up hanging out with some seahorse and pipefish geeks. And these people, they were kind of the aquarium uh, world's equivalent of the crazy cat people. A little bit weird, kind of a little geeky, but boy, they partied hard, so they were kind of fun to hang out with. Anyway, it turns out I got to talking to some of these people and got some really, really good information. And, uh, you know, this particular fish is considered challenging, but the secret was to feed them live foods first, not to get them to eat frozen food. I mean, this seems like a no-brainer now, but back then it was not entirely as well-known. I was also given some great advice by one really experienced, albeit a little bit drunk and hobbyist, and he said, consider the habitat from which they come. And, and it was simple as that. It was just a, a phrase. And in this instance, it was seagrass beds. 
unique marine habitats, which we've talked about before on this uh, podcast, they're just bursting with life at many levels. And with a little effort, seagrasses can be grown and maintained in the aquarium. I did. That advice, that little sentence, that, that simple idea of, you know, consider the, the habitat from which they come literally changed the course of my aquarium hobby life work. Design the aquarium around the fish, not adapt the fish to your aquarium. This makes a lot of so-called problematic or difficult fishes a lot less difficult. Now, a few months later, after a whole lot of research and effort, I delved into the world of seagrasses and I set up an aquarium to grow them. In fact, I was so into it, I set up a little outdoor little pond to grow them in my backyard. And I was able to get them to grow. My research about the habitat, looking up the habitat, and questioning people that knew about the habitat and about seagrass beds and about, you know, pipe fishes and so forth, su- you know, suggested, led me to a, an idea, which another friend suggested, which was pre-stock the aquarium with all sorts of organisms. In this case, it was like marine rotifers, amphipods, sapunculid worms, copepods, live sand, all that kind of stuff. And let the seagrasses really establish themselves before adding the fishes. And guess what? I learned to develop a microcosm. We've talked about this before too, haven't we? One which could provide as much supplemental food as possible for the fishes while they acclimated to prepared foods. An environment as close as possible to the one from which my fishes came from. And wouldn't you know it worked. I was able to maintain three specimens for about two years before I unfortunately needed to break the tank down and had to give them away to somebody who I don't think had quite the same good experience I did and I still regret that. But strangely, the idea, again, was pretty simple. The execution wasn't as much difficult as it was demanding of patience and demanding of understanding, something I already had as a fish keeper and I learned a lot, though, in the process, like how to keep seagrasses, how to cultivate amphipods, and all kinds of interesting practices which have, to this day, benefit me. Lessons learned, hobby direction formed. This pipefish thing was like a real pivotal lesson, one that made me fundamentally reconsider how to create aquariums, how to manage them, and how to work with all sorts of fishes. Meet their needs, not yours. It's pretty straightforward. Despite all of this, and after a lifetime in the hobby, I say somewhat confidently that there are no difficult fish. You're like, what the fuck? After all of that, you make this brash and ignorant statement, Feldman? Well, yeah, it's not ignorant, though. And here's why. It's not that a fish is inherently difficult. It simply means that we, as hobbyists, if we want to be successful with a species, need to meet its needs. We need to make the effort to study its specific requirements, the habitat from which it comes, uh, and its life cycle. These are things that can be challenging to understand. They require a lot of delving into things. I mean, brain surgery is difficult. To be a brain surgeon, you have to educate yourself. You have to know what you're doing. You have to have a steady hand. You can't be squeamish about blood. You got to know what the brain does, blah, blah, blah. But it's possible thousands of brain surgeons come out of college every year, right? Because they want it. We need to find out how to obtain the fish from sources which have properly handled it along the chain of custody from stream to shore. We have to do a little research. And that sometimes means bypassing the fish world drivel, like, yeah, this podcast and blog and all that other stuff. And sometimes the, 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 you know, the hobby forums and, you know, Facebook and all that stuff. And sometimes you have to slug it out on Google Scholar, Fishbase, ResearchGate. And all these other academic sources, which, yeah, they have Latin names, graphs, and cladograms, and things that are less exciting than the cool pictures you see on the ground, but they have real good information if you can get through it. 
To many hobbyists, that's difficult. The fish, however, is not. Difficult tasks like, I don't know, landing a man on the fucking moon (laughs) require us to solve literally thousands of problems and challenges, accumulate resources, and to create hardware practices and procedures to accomplish the goal. And as we know, landing a man on the moon isn't impossible, right? We landed a man on the moon back in 1969 because we decided that we wanted to do it. We broke it down into a series of tasks and stages. Remember Project Mercury, Project Gemini, Project Apollo. If you're not a space geek, look those up. It's cool. We put the effort in. We overcame our mistakes and our tragic failures. We went for it. So while trying to keep and breed, say, Indostomus paradoxus might seem like a real problem, is there a problem here, really? Sure, on the surface, it seems like a poster child for difficult, right? It's tough to obtain. It's a small, relatively timid fish with a tiny mouth and so-called specialized feeding requirements. Yet, break it down for a second. It's hard to find. Why? Because there isn't a whole lot of demand for it. It comes from difficult to work in environments. Yet lots of people have kept this fish and even bred them over the years. Do you want some? Well, hound your suppliers, leave posts on the forums, hit up Google, do the work. You'll find some. You'll find somebody out there in the world that can tip you off to where to get them or maybe even supply some for you. Trust me, it might take a while, but you will find them. The fish comes from swamps and places with muddy, soft, you know, clay-filled substrates with decaying leaf litter and all stuff like that. Well, shit, we make a damn good soft, clay-filled, muddy substrate, don't we? Check. Yes, we do. (laughs) And sure as hell, I know where you can get some leaves. You do too. I hope you do, at least. Look, these substrates are home to small crustaceans, worms, etc., stuff like that. We could do this. So, like, why is that a problem? How many people do you know can breed, you know, Grindel worms and black worms and Daphnia and copepods? Just pre-stock your tank with copepods, Daphnia, Gamorous, etc. for like a month before you add the fish. We've done that before. We just talked about that, right? We know how to build the microbiome of our aquariums, don't we? <laughs> yeah, we do. And not a lot of water movement and likely a species-only tank. Just get a tank for them. Problem solved. Don't use a high, you know, high flow on your return. Easy. So sure, not every fish problem will have, you know, off-the-shelf solutions to utilize, but you can use the same breakdown approach to figure out how to make it happen. And yeah, I know some fish will have, you know, 13 or 14 considerations to figure out instead of five, but you get the idea. And yeah, landing on, you know, men on the moon had about 14 million considerations and they did that. You can even breed the world's smallest fish. You know, the Pedo Cyprus. I don't know I botched that name, but it's a tiny little fish, right? You can breed that fish if you figure out its needs, provide for them, and are patient and persistent as fuck. You can. It's simple and as difficult as that. To me, degree of difficulty simply means how much do you want it? How much do you want it? How many challenges do you want to meet? How patient are you? How willing to research it are you? How far are you push it? Are you up for the challenge? You've got this. Stay persistent. Stay diligent. Stay tenacious. Stay patient. And always stay wet. Until next time, this is Scott Feldman from Tenant Aquatics. Thanks for spending part of your day with me, and I look forward to seeing you on the next installment of The Tint.